From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. Dre McKesson has lost track of the number of times he's been arrested. In 2014, he protested the killing of Michael Brown by police in Ferguson, Missouri. And he's been fighting on the front lines of the Black Lives Matter movement ever since. In 2016, he was arrested after another protester, we don't know who, threw something, we don't know what, injuring a police officer whose name we don't even know. If this case is allowed to move forward, it could mean the end of street protests. The ACLU, and I personally, am part of DeRay's legal team, and we've asked the Supreme Court to stop this dangerous lawsuit in its tracks. DeRay joins us today to talk about the case, his life as an activist, and what quarantine could mean for online activism. DeRay McKesson, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. It's so good to be here. So, DeRay, as we mentioned, you were in Ferguson in 2014 protesting against police violence, and again in 2016 when Alton Sterling was killed in Baton Rouge, you were called to action. Can you tell us what did you do to respond to the killing of Alton Sterling? You know, it's been a long five years since the protest began because of the death of Mike Brown and so many more people have been killed since then. And when Alton Sterling got killed, remember it was around the same time that Philando Castro got killed. So it was another nationwide conversation about these two men have been killed. I lived in Minneapolis when the protest started. I didn't really have a deep connection with Baton Rouge. An activist reached out to me who I'd known online for a while. And she was like, do you think you can come? I had a job in Baltimore as a chief human capital. So I was like, you know, I'll come Friday as soon as I leave the office. So I got out of the office. Flew to Baton Rouge, landed, went straight to a community meeting, went to sleep. And then the next night, it was there was a big protest that somebody else had organized. So we went out just to support. And, you know, I'm out in the street. And just for like, I probably was outside for, I don't know, a couple hours. And the next thing I know, there's like a stampede of people running. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to get caught up in the stampede. So I run, but I fall. And as I try to get up, I realize it's really hard to get up. I'm like, oh, I must have gotten caught. And at that time, I realized I'm under arrest. These two officers who have put their hands on my shoulder, and that starts the next 17, 18 hours. I'm in police custody. We eventually get it overturned. But then, you know, a lot of things happen, and it leads to this lawsuit. Right. So this was not the first time that you had been arrested. When you blocked the street, when you have any kind of civil disobedience action, you kind of expect that you might end up getting arrested and released. So it wasn't your first rodeo, so to speak. Yeah, not my first time getting arrested. I got arrested before at the Department of Justice building in St. Louis. And, you know, I don't know if I always expect an arrest, but I know that, like, it can lead to an arrest. I think what was interesting about Baton Rouge, and I've been to a lot of cities and protests, is that in Baton Rouge, the people were pretty chill. It was just, like, a very chill place. The police are really aggressive. So, you know, even at the very beginning of us being outside, nobody wanted to even shut down the street. So everybody was just on the sidewalk. And even when people were just on the sidewalk, the police were snatching and grabbing and arresting people to sort of display a show of force. So I was shocked by this uh, lawsuit because, you know, after I was arrested, I led a class action lawsuit against Baton Rouge PD and the city settled with me. And part of the settlement was that all the people arrested in the way that I was arrested got it expunged, they got their legal fees covered, they got a monetary settlement. So it was a big deal that they settled. And then I was shocked to learn later that I got this lawsuit fought against me. 
Right. So you were arrested and you and other protesters for blocking the street. You actually won your challenge to that initial arrest. But then you get notice that an unnamed police officer is suing you and others for injuries received by somebody who we don't even know and they don't even claim that you knew. So how did you react when you first were served with these papers? Well, I got sued by five police officers very shortly after two in Baton Rouge. All of them got dismissed by the lower court. So when I first received that, I was like, well, this is wild. I was in police custody for so long that I had no clue what happened you know, outside of it. I didn't see an officer get hit by a rock, didn't hear about it. First time I'm hearing about it was, was when I got filed. It got dismissed. We were very excited about it. And then the legal trouble started at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. I essentially lost four different times at the Fifth Circuit. So when I initially got found, I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. Uh, and I was happy that we sort of pushed back and that it got dismissed by the lower courts. I couldn't have imagined that we would be stuck in the legal sort of space that we're in today. Well, I don't want to get too much into the weeds because this case got complicated very quickly. But as you said, you won in the district court, the initial court. They dismissed the case because of the First Amendment. And then the Fifth Circuit revived the case and said it could go forward based on a negligence claim, which is basically saying that you, DeRay McKesson, breached your duty by stepping into the street during the protest and the violence that occurred, even though you had nothing to do with it, it was foreseeable, and therefore you might be held liable for this. What did you think when you heard that theory of how you could be held liable? I thought it was absurd. And like, if, if we take that rationale across any movement, then like, there's no reason to think that the police won't use that as a way to introduce a chilling effect across movements to leaders. Also, it's one of those things where like, if it's this easy to file lawsuits, then there's no reason that like some agitator won't come in and do something destructive. I actually didn't know that you could get this far in the legal space with very little proof because like I didn't throw a rock, I don't know anything about a rock, so I was shocked by that. Um, and I was like, generally, I still to this day am am worried about what happens if this case continues, like if this precedent like just maintained because I got lucky enough to be able to call people like you all and like, you know, help to represent me in this process. But, you know, it's this easy for police officers to sue and say that you can be held negligent. It's like that is just frightening what that could open up. Right. And to be crystal clear, not even the officer claims that you had anything to do with throwing the rock. But this negligence idea was used by the Fifth Circuit to revive this case. And as you said, that's when the ACLU got involved. And we, along with the rest of your legal team, have asked the Supreme Court to review the Fifth Circuit's decision. There's been some weird back and forth, and this Fifth Circuit has issued numerous opinions. But as you said, the stakes couldn't be higher in this situation, because if an organizer, a quote-unquote organizer, can be held liable for anything that happens in a protest, the chilling effect will be real. What are the stakes from your perspective? This happened to me like out of a movie. I think about how much time and energy I've had to spend just trying to sort of navigate this process. It's been a while, to say the least. And I think if these things continue, then like people, the the cost of being a protest leader will just be so high that I, I can imagine that it will lead to people choosing not to take actions, even though they had no part of what might have led to be violent. The second thing is that, like, it's still not really clear that anything actually happened that night. Like, I literally had not heard about Iraq, hadn't seen anything on the news about a police officer, like, had heard nothing until I saw this case. So 
just the question of like what are the facts is interesting and like how far you can get in the legal process to just tie people up. And again, we've had this four times before the Fifth Circuit at some point. You know, the ACLU has drafted two complete whole briefs to the Supreme Court. It's like there's a lot of energy all predicated on something that like didn't really happen the way that it's described as happening. Right. And if somebody knows that they can bankrupt Ray McKesson or any other prominent activist just by having somebody at a protest do something illegal or at least saying that somebody at a protest do something illegal, who on earth would feel comfortable participating or organizing a protest? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why this is like, I honestly didn't think it would get this far. I thought that like, because they all got dismissed. So when this got dismissed in the beginning, I was like, okay, we did it like done it was sort of ridiculous we thought as a claim and then when it got overturned we were like wow i had no clue that this was even a possibility so hoping the supreme court uh will hear it because for the 30 million people living in the fifth circuit this would be a really wild way to live well we will certainly stay tuned we're waiting for word from the supreme court we're not exactly sure when it will decide whether it's going to hear the case or not But we'll certainly keep At Liberty listeners updated as the situation develops. I want to pivot a little bit, taking a step away from the specifics of your case, and talk a little bit about protest. And especially as we're in the midst of this coronavirus outbreak, I'm struck by the idea, you know, one way to end street protests is through these crazy lawsuits. Another way is a pandemic when everyone's required to be at home. And I'm wondering... From your perspective, what do you think we'll see in terms of online protests? I'm struck by one of the things that the Fifth Circuit even said was uh, hashtag Black Lives Matter cannot be sued, right? The officer tried to sue a hashtag and all of the courts have said that you can't do that. And it's a catchy line, you know, you can't sue a hashtag. But it also speaks, I think, to the relationship between online and in-person activism, so with large parts of the country in quarantine, what do you foresee from activists? I think you'll see a very different way that people think about the importance of community and being around each other and pushing. So I think that's interesting. You know, I'm also reminded that people in elected office have a responsibility and a job to do. And part of that is hearing from the constituents. So I think that like phone call campaigns will increase. I think that emails, all that stuff, like is still a great way to advocate. I think that one of the things that the protest did that I think is sort of misleading is that it confused people to believe that the only way to press for change was to do it in person. Like the only mm-hmm. way to sort of pressure people was to show up at their door and da, da, da. And like, I think that we'll see that, you know, a million phone calls really matter. I think the other thing that'll be interesting is that I think that the coronavirus will call a lot more people who normally wouldn't be on the internet every day to the internet, if not only because they are nervous or anxious or just want more information. So I think that'll be interesting to see like what changes when it's not only the activists, so it's not sort of the normal internet crowd that is like consuming content. And the third is I think that we'll see a really big sea change in uh, content. The hard part about that is that, and you know this, is that the misinformation around just the coronavirus is so intense. So I think Mm -hmm. that like it's interesting to see people on the platform take a step back when it was about election security but like when we all could die immediately around the coronavirus it's like you see apple and twitter and everybody sort of joining forces to fight misinformation and i think that we'll see that ramp up because what is there are people still today and we saw this with the police right people didn't believe it until they saw bodies like people didn't believe the police were killing people until they could touch and feel the tragedy it's like everybody's predicting that there's going to be a moment soon where like 
the deaths and the tragedy will be really clear for people. It won't just be like, oh, this is like the flu. Oh, I'm going to go get some food. It'll like start to be real for people. Mm-hmm. And I think that that will be a tipping point. I think that there'll be this moment where like people we know, their cousins and their uncles and their aunts will die or like something like that will happen that'll force people to reimagine. So in terms of organizing, I think that online communities will be stronger than they've ever been. I think that campaigns to call and email stuff like that will will continue to be strong and i think that we'll redefine what it means to be in community with people i'm curious though you've done a lot of street protests you've done a lot of work online you have a robust twitter presence you have a podcast what methods of protest do you think have been most effective yeah i don't really know if i think a method is most effective i think that the method has to meet the moment. So in St. Louis, it was important that we were in the street because if we weren't in the street, then they would have acted like we didn't exist. And it took our bodies being on the line for people to just, we had to remove the possibility that they could ignore us. And that was really important. Uh, there's some places where like being in the street just isn't the biggest way to do it. If anything, I've been more encouraged, especially by younger people who have thrown out the window the idea that protest has to be one thing. I think that we know that protest is telling the truth in public, that when we protest, we're saying this is a truth that you tried to hide, that you tried to tell us we weren't supposed to talk about, that you tried to ignore, and that we will refuse to let you do that. And that's what protest is. And I'm also mindful that protest opens space for the solution, but protest is not the, the solution. So we stood in the street, not so we could stand in the street forever, because we needed to bring attention to a crisis to force people to engage us on solutions. And I do think that some people have misunderstood the purpose in the past five years that like, you don't do the shutdown. The shutdown is not the goal. The shutdown is a means to get to the greater goal, which is a solution. Well, it's a powerful message and one that I think people will need to take to heart as we really go back to the drawing board in terms of strategy and all of the priorities seem to be shifting by the minute. You're not new to protest. Not even in 2014 were you new to protest. Can you talk about sort of the roots of your activism? Was there something in your youth in Baltimore that galvanized you? Yeah, so I was a youth organizer as a teenager in Baltimore, and that was incredible. And I worked with young people and adults and communities to help them work together. And then I taught, which changed my life, and trying to see the way, you know, I was a good teacher, a very good teacher, but I also saw the way that systems made decisions that impacted kids and families in ways that were sometimes beautiful and ways that sometimes were really dangerous and damaging. So that was big to me. And then I also was in student government from sixth grade to senior year in college, and that gave me a love of programming. And you've taken up a variety of issues over the course of your activism. You've primarily become most prominently known for your work against police brutality. But that's far from the only thing that you've been active on. How do you sort of prioritize and specialize the issues on which you've chosen to be publicly active? The only thing that got millions of people across the world in the street in 2014 and kept them there was the police. That what that did is that it opened up space for us to talk about a host of other things, about identity, about poverty, about race. But at a macro level, it was the issue of police violence that got people on the street, and I feel a responsibility to that. I also know that there's no way to fight the issue of mass incarceration without dealing with the police, right? That the only way to get to jail or prison is through the police. But my first sort of professional love was uh, working on issues around children and families. That was what I did as a youth organizer. It was why I became a teacher, why I opened up an after-school center, why I helped lead an after-school center in Harlem, like why I worked as a chief human capital in the Baltimore City public school system. Like I believe in systems. I worked in Minneapolis public school systems, but I believe in kids and systems. 
you started as a youth activist as a youth and then are now, as you said, talking about police primarily, but as a gateway to all these other issues. And we all know, obviously, that black and brown folks are disproportionately impacted by police brutality, black men in particular. And you're also a gay man and queer black folks are even more vulnerable, the statistics say, to police brutality and other forms of victimization. Does that play a major role in your activism as well? Yeah, so we know, you know, the thing about the police, the police have actually killed more people since the protests not less. So uh, that is sobering. Uh, We do know that there have been a decline in urban spaces, but an increase in suburban and rural communities, which is interesting. The best data we have is about police violence that results in death. And it is almost solely um, at the surface level of identity. So we know gender, we know race, and we often know age. And what we know is that the majority of victims are men of police violence that results in death across the country. Now, there's not as much data, especially at any national level, around the way identity impacts. Uh, The only reason we have good data about police violence that results in death is because the person died. So, like, the police can't really hide it because they died. Now, what we, from the data sets we have, we know that women are disproportionate victims of police violence that doesn't result in death. So, like, sexual assault, verbal assault. And we know that queer folks are also disproportionate victims of the violence of the police that doesn't result in death. So there are two prongs of approach. One is like, we want to get the data. We want to make sure that it's captured so that we can quantify it for people. And it's never about convincing the people who hate us, but it is about arming the people who are already on our side to figure out what solutions look like. So we want to get the data. And the second is that we want to fight for solutions we believe to be true, even in the absence of this. So to your question, yes, is that part of my work as a gay Black man is like, how do we make the world safe for all people, including people of all identities? Uh, So how do queer people feel safe? How do trans women feel safe? How do trans men feel safe? How do we prioritize communities in marginalized communities that have been further marginalized is a key part of the work. I'm like obsessed with systems. I like want to figure out how we make systems better because as somebody who used to lead programs, programs are really powerful. Programs often only exist because a system failed in the first place or was unwilling. And programs rarely operate at scale. Systems always operate at scale for better or for worse. So that's the goal. And I think if anything, the coronavirus has reminded everybody is that the government can actually move as quick as it wants to. That like, We could end homelessness tomorrow. We could do all these things pretty quickly. There's just not always a political will to do it. You mentioned data, and I know that one of your co-hosts on Pod Save the People, your podcast, is Sam Sinyangwe, who's been very focused on developing data around police interactions with the public. But it brings up the idea of where do you think your podcast fits into your activism? Yeah, I started the podcast because there was an acknowledgement that we have to manage some of the conversation. And it's been powerful over the past three years to sort of see people respond. First, people are hungry for people who know content really well. And then I also started the podcast because I was sensitive to like, I had a big platform. I had a million followers on Twitter. I've been on all these TV things and da da da. But Brittany, Clinton, Sam, who are also on the pod, are brilliant. They are incredible. And you don't always get to hear them, but they help push me. They help push so many people. So I wanted to create a platform where these four voices were featured and heard. And that has been really powerful. So as a part of the activism, it is this idea that we actually have to be storytellers. We have to be people sort of who are telling a narrative about the world we want to live in and the world we're experiencing. Great, great. Well, we look forward to hearing what you have coming out from Pod Save the People. I know people have a lot of time on their hands, so I encourage folks to check out the full archive. But I wanted to finish. We've talked about activism. We've talked about getting your message out, but we haven't talked about politics. And 
you actually ran for mayor of Baltimore in 2016. So clearly you believe that there is some worthwhile effort can be expended in the political sphere. You've also endorsed candidates. In this time of great tumult around the coronavirus, how do you balance the feeling of disillusionment with also the importance that we hold in our elections? Yeah, I think that I'm mindful, uh, and this is a conversation I have with President Obama in the White House, right, is this, that voting is a one tool in the toolkit, and the only way to build the house is to use all the tools. So when I think about like voting, I tell people to vote not because it'll automatically change the world, but we're trying to build a house, and the only way to build the house is to use everything. Same thing about running for office is that we can't always be the people on the outside fighting the person on the inside. We just have to be the person on the inside sometimes. It makes it easier to move things that we care about. So I do think about like a, how do we make sure we're as organized on the inside as we are on the outside, that this is like a both-and strategy, not either-or. And our goal is scaling the solution. The goal isn't to fight the system forever. The goal is to make a system that works for people. So that's how I think about it. Well, in the face of all these challenges, the institutional challenges, the programmatic challenges, the political challenges, what gives you hope? You know, I'm hopeful because I see people organize in new and interesting ways every day. I see so many people who, like, don't identify as activists and organizers who have brilliant ideas, who have pushed us all to think deeper about these issues. And frankly, I think about some of the most incredible ideas that came out of St. Louis for by high school students, by college students, by people who like felt a conviction and were called to something and they did it. And like, I'll never ever lose hope because I've seen that. I've been in rooms, I've been in church basements, I've been in living rooms, I've been on port. I've seen it happen in beautiful ways that don't often make TV, but have changed the world. Dorian McKesson, thanks so much for your time, for all of your efforts. Uh, We will fight together at the Supreme Court and hang tough during the quarantine. Cool, talk to you later. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace and wash your hands.